I believe we might have once started a podcast like this before, talking about the hit movie Jaws. Hmm. Maybe when we talked about Megalodon. That's been a year or two. Yeah, it is. But that story was based on a series of shark attacks off the New Jersey shore and even inland in New Jersey in 1916. That's back a few years. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I didn't think about it when I was doing the research, but that's over 100 years ago. (laughs) So tonight we're going to talk about the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So no, Jaws is not technically a true story. It is, however, based upon Peter Benchley's novel, the same title. Uh, The Jaws author had a lifelong fascination with sharks in general and said that he came up with the concept for the novel after reading about a great white shark that had been caught by a fisherman. The fisherman's name was Frank Mundus, uh, and that would have been in 1964. Now, Benchley actually references that incident in the introduction of his book, Jaws, and it clearly states, In 1964, I read an item in a newspaper about a fisherman who harpooned a 4,500-pound great white shark off of Long Island. I remember thinking at the time, Lord, what would happen if one of those monsters came into a resort community and it wouldn't go away? I tucked the item into my wallet, and for a time being, I forgot about it. Now, Robert Shaw's character, Quint, was inspired, actually, by the Frank Mundus real-life person, the shark hunter, who later became a conservationist later on in his life. It's my understanding that Benchley regretted Jaws because of the impact it had on people and their reaction to sharks after that. Well, yeah, here he becomes a conservationist for the sharks. And of course, I mean, let's face it, Jaws is a horror movie, you might as well say. Yeah. And I mean, it did cause people to be terrified of sharks. I know people, like I have a, I have a friend that I went to high school with and that's one of his number one fears because, you know, for a while he lived on the coast and he went oh, yeah. surfing and, and that was one of his things. Of course, me being the good friend that I am, I drug him to go see the movie Deep Blue Sea. A lot of insult to injury yeah, there. Which apparently was much scarier to him than it was to me. I consider Deep Blue Sea almost a comedy. That scene where the shark eats Samuel L. Jackson is, oh, I laughed out loud and <laughs> people stared. You're so, so twisted. Yeah, but. People and the way they think of sharks, I mean, they're just an animal. They do what they do. Yeah, that's kind of what they're supposed to do. Uh, eating is is kind of primary function. <laughs> yeah, they, they do what they have to do to survive. In New Jersey, in 1916, or, well, really across the country at that point, I, I guess the country was dealing with a polio epidemic and a deadly summer heat wave at the time. And, of course, this drove thousands of people to the seaside resorts, uh, you know, along the shore, And in this case, specifically the Jersey Shore. And really at the time, ocean swimming was still a relatively new 
way to pass the time. But, you know, there was this series of shark attacks over about 11, 12 days that just, I mean, it sent the, the whole country into a panic. Uh, it led to shark hunts intended to just eliminate the population of sharks. And, of course, with the other in, intending to protect the economy of New Jersey seaside communities. So, you know, still money. Well, and again, uh, I'll show my own ignorance here. I, I loosely knew of these events. Once I got into them, I recognized, uh, but I'd forgotten. But I didn't realize this, this wasn't just local news. I mean, this made worldwide news. It was picked up by the New York Times at first, actually over in England. People from overseas were even traveling over here to try to investigate and figure out more. Because I think it was really the first true documented if you will, serial killer shark that we had, you know, multiple attacks believed to be by one shark. So this, this wasn't just like big New Jersey news. It was worldwide. Well, even at the time, the experts did not believe that sharks posed a danger to people. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But these resort towns, I mean, they, they did what they could. They enclosed their beaches with still nets to protect the swimmers. And I mean, really, just the fact that a shark was attacking people sort of, like I said, challenged the beliefs at the time. And again, you think about that. I mean, I've been to the beach several times, and I think probably most people have, but you can wade out quite a ways, but there are, there's holes and stuff, but we're, that's still shallow water. You know what I mean? It doesn't take much water. I think I read somewhere it's like 18 inches of water, depending on the size of the shark. That's amazing. So 18 is like what your knee? Yeah. Foot and a um, half deep of water and, and yeah, a shark like, can come up. Well, like you said, you can get pretty far from the shore. I've seen places you can wade out a half a mile in some, some areas. I mean, it's, you don't think about that around here. We think of a lake. My gosh, you go three foot off the shore and you may be over your head in water, you know? Well, yeah, I, I've gone to the ocean, you know, multiple times. And yeah, that you can walk way, way, way away from the shore. And most beaches will have signs that you got to stay within so close. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the last time we went, we stayed at a hotel. I mean, literally, you walked out the back door of the hotel, you were on the beach. Nice. And, well, it wasn't a nice hotel. It was what we could afford. <laughs> but we were there, and, and my wife had a, had a friend and, and their family. And I want to say it was the last day we were there, maybe, when we got up in the morning. We went out to go to the beach, and there were flags up. There was a shark warning. They'd seen sharks offshore, oh, wow. so you couldn't go out. And there were still people in the water, you know, and the lifeguard's doing his best to yell at people. And we're like, well, so we went and ate breakfast, I think, and came back later. But yeah, I mean, you can go way out there. And again, you don't even have to go that far. Like I said, it's like 18 inches of water, I think is what I've read. But back in July, as a matter of fact, July 1st, 1916, at Beach Haven, New Jersey, the first attack of this wave of shark attacks happened. Southern coast. Now, this was a resort town on Long Beach Island, just off the coast. And a Charles Van Zandt, 28 years old, a son of a doctor from Philadelphia, which apparently this particular area attracted a lot of tourism from the Philadelphia area. Now, he was on vacation at the Ingleside Hotel with his family. And before they had dinner that night, he decided he was going to go take a quick evening swim with his dog. Now, his dog obediently followed him into the water, but then at a certain point, the dog was just, you know, the dog suddenly turned back for the beach, 
And Vinzant tried to get the dog to come back, calling the dog back out to go swimming, but the, the dog refused to get in the water. Dog knew a little bit more about what was about to happen. Yeah. Now, some stories say that beachgoers saw a dorsal fin in the water, but they were unable to warn Van Zant before he began shouting for help. Other swimmers and beachgoers, when he started calling for help, believe he was calling for the dog again. And so they kind of dismissed the, the screaming. They, they didn't immediately realize he was in need of help. But in all actuality, a shark had bitten his leg and torn away a huge chunk of flesh. Eventually, lifeguard Alexander Ott and bystander Sheridan Taylor went into the water to go save him. And when they grabbed him, when they got back to shore, they said a 10-foot shark had followed them all the way back until it got too shallow for the shark anymore, which, again, doesn't have to be. I, I think they said, you know, till they were just 10, 15 feet from the shore tops. And then uh, after they pulled him from the water, he was severely bleeding, and they saw that his left thigh had been stripped, pretty much just all the, the flesh gone. Gruesome. And despite the best efforts of Van Zant's own father, who was a doctor, like I said earlier, uh, Van Zant died within an hour, bleeding to death on the manager's desk of the hotel. Yeah, can you imagine, I mean, tourists. Yeah. Popular, <laughs> busy, and they come dragging this poor guy in. I mean, his the, the flesh, the meat off his left thigh is missing. We all know a droplet of blood in the water. I mean, it's yeah. going to be just covered in blood. They come dragging him into the hotel, just throw him right up there on the uh, lobby table. And, oh my gosh, it would have been a, a spectacle. Even experts today say, even with all the advances in medical technology and all that, it's unlikely Van Zant would have survived his injury. Now, Van Zant was only in three and a half feet of water when he got attacked. So again, let's say he's six foot tall. Waist deep. Now, despite Van Zant's attack, the beaches along the Jersey Shore area remained open. Yep. Sightings of large sharks swimming off the coast of New Jersey were actually even reported by sea captains entering the ports of Newark and New York City. But again, just like in the movie Jaws, it was dismissed. You know, regardless of those first attacks, the beaches will remain open. Well, and like I said, at the time, they weren't even blaming a shark. There were... Lots of people who were like, oh, no, it couldn't have been a shark. Sharks don't attack people. There was doubt that a great white even had enough bite force. Yes, I remember to, seeing To bite that. a leg off. They Everybody were was so novice at the time. They didn't understand. Well, and if you think about it, like I said, we said it's like 100 years ago, but you'd think, man, we encountered sharks plenty of times. People were blaming it on a maybe a particularly large sea turtle. I heard that. Which were known to snap at people. Some even were blaming a giant mackerel, which I can't imagine, but... Attack of the killer mackerels. Attack number two was July 6th of 1916, kind of the same area, Beach Haven, Long Island, uh, New Jersey. The resort town of Spring Lake this time, just a little north. A person by the name of Bruder. Bruder, the gentleman that was attacked while swimming 130 yards or about 120 meters from shore. A shark bit him in the abdomen and severed his legs. Bruder's blood turned the water red in the entire vicinity as we were talking. You know, it doesn't take much, but when you're yeah. decapitate or not decapitate, when you take off someone's legs, especially, you're hitting major arteries and, and everything. After hearing screams, a woman notified two lifeguards that came in a canoe and said that this this man was out there. There was a ship or a, a small boat that had capsized. Yeah, she said it was. He tipped over his red canoe. Red the canoe. The water was so red that she thought there was a boat under the surface. 
said he was just out there floating at the water's surface. Now, lifeguard Chris Anderson and George White rode out to Bruder in a lifeboat and realized that he had been bitten by a shark. I can't even imagine at this point. I mean, his abdomen has been bitten. Uh, his legs are missing. This poor guy yeah. is still somehow managing to stay above the water. They pulled him from the water, but uh, he bled to death on the way to the shore. Yeah, he was laying in the bottom of the boat bleeding. And even as he was dying there, he told his, his would-be rescuers, and, and these are his words, he was a big gray fellow and as rough as sandpaper. He cut me here in the side, and his belly was so rough it bruised my face and arms. That was when I yelled the first time. I thought he had gone on, but he only turned and shot back at me and snipped my leg off. I mean, he was still talking at that point. That's insane. They said as basically they brought him in, at this point his body, because he didn't make it too sure, that women were literally just panic-stricken, passing out there on the beach from the mutilated body. They also, uh, his mother was, I guess, his only direct surviving family that lived in Switzerland. Yeah, he was Swiss. So uh, the Essex and Sussex hotels and kind of the neighboring area actually raised money for his mother to help, I think, with the the funeral and taking care of things. Well, he was an employee of the Essex and Sussex, which, uh, you know, it was nice of them to take up a collection to, to help his family. What kind of sets these attacks apart is the fact that the next three happen not in the ocean. The next three attacks take place in Matawan Creek, which is the actual site of the attacks was inland. And I've saw so. pictures of that area. It's a, a creek. Yeah. I mean, it's not even a river yeah, size. Yeah, it's not a big it's, river. It's, you could throw a rock from one side and probably hit the other side in most areas. Now, three days before the attacks in Matawan Creek, a 14-year-old Rensselaer Carton, which I've never heard that as a first name before. No. But he was swimming in Matawan Creek with his friends when something big with rough skin brushed by him. Now, he scrambled up out of the water, scratched and bloodied across his chest. None of the other boys saw anything. They didn't see what did it. They didn't know what had happened. And they just gathered him up. They went to get him taken care of. The next three attacks, the last three attacks, happened near the town of Keyport on Wednesday, July 12th. This is about 30 miles north of Spring Lake, and it's inland of Raritan Bay, I want to say by a, almost 11 miles. So this is way upstream. And this shark's getting around. Now, for all intents and purposes, Matawan was more like a Midwestern town. They compared it to the kind of town you'd find around here rather than a beach resort. And, of course, its location made it an unlikely site for shark attacks since it was, like I said, about 11 miles from the ocean. So when Thomas Cottrell, a sea captain and Matawan resident, said he spotted a nine-foot-long shark in the creek swimming under a bridge, people didn't really believe him. Yeah, I think this dude was just like walking over the bridge, happened to look down, and he saw this huge shark. Well, he, he saw the shark, and then he remembered the story of the carton boy from the day before. And he put the two together, you know, the rough skin and all that. Yep. And so he knew he had to go warn people. And, of course, they just dismissed his claims. Now, to be fair, Captain Cottrell there did seem a little bit like a madman as he was literally running through the streets of Matawan, <laughs> warning people to avoid the water because of the shark. There's a shark in the creek. Yeah, and, and people were like, oh, we're 11 miles from the ocean. Now, unfortunately, there, there was a group of local boys that were on their way to the creek, and Cottrell just did not run into them on the way, and this would prove to be unfortunate. But there was a group of local boys, they were workers in a local basket factory, and they'd been given the afternoon off because it was so hot, and they were just on their way to go swimming. They were going to go swimming in the creek. 
And of course, missing Cottrell would have just unfortunate circumstances. Uh, about 2 p.m., this group of boys, including a Lester Stillwell, who was 11 years old at the time, were playing in the creek. Now, one boy had brought along his dog, which was also swimming in the water with him, at an area called Wickoff Dock, which is about a mile upriver from the ocean at that spot. And while they were swimming, Lester called out to his friends, Hey, fellas, watch me float. And when they all looked to watch, the other boys saw this dark shape surge through the water towards him. They described it as, quote, old black weather-beaten board or a weathered log. They didn't even know what it was. Yeah, like a floating old decapitated log. When the dorsal fin broke the surface, you know, that iconic image yeah. of the shark fin da through the water, the boys immediately realized, hey, that's a shark. And before Stillwell could get back to the shore, the, the shark attacked him. And with a scream, he was pulled underwater. Of course, the water bloomed red from the attack. The boys all rushed to town to get help. And, you know, I don't mean to make this funny, but the boys had been skinny dipping. So there's this <laughs> gaggle of nude you know, preteen kids 11, running through 12, town, 13 year old boys yelling shark, shark, a shark got Lester. And so a crowd gathered up and a group of young men went out to the Creek. And then some of them swam out there cautiously, hoping to find the boy or at least his body. Now this included local businessman, Stanley Fisher, who was 24 at the time. Fisher dived into deeper waters than any of the others would a little braver, willing to take that risk, I guess. And on his final dive, he stayed down for a real long time. And then when he finally came to the surface, he yelled, I've got it. And they could see that he had the boy's body in his hand. And it was clear that the boy was dead and been thoroughly savaged by the shark. Nearly the entire town was gathered as Fisher swam back to shore. And as he got closer to the edge of shore, if you've ever been swimming, especially in a muddy creek, he kind of got stuck in the mud a little bit as he's trying to get his footing. He was suddenly slammed from the right and it caused him to lose grip on Stillwell's body. And the horrified townsfolk assembled there watched as this massive shark pulled Fisher into the water, spinning him around and taking bites out of him. So if there was ever any doubt from the townspeople, the old crazy yeah. sea captain has warned them and they blew him off. The naked boys running through town in a parade, <laughs> they'd blown him off, but now they're seeing it. Onlookers said that Fisher, who was an athletic man by all accounts, fought savagely against the shark, punching and kicking it as his own blood darkened the surface. But the shark only gave up when rescuers in a boat began to beat it with an oar. Now, his right thigh was almost entirely gone when they pulled him from the water. And there was a doctor on the scene who didn't think he was going to make it to the nearest hospital, which was about 20 miles away. But at the time, of course, obviously travel times and things like that, they didn't really have a way to get him there quickly. But hours later, they did put him on the train, which sped nonstop to the hospital in Long Branch. And when he got there, doctors estimated he had lost almost 10 pounds of flesh. Mm. And he died in the operating room crying and, and saying to those there, I did my duty. The boy's body, still, uh, Stillwell's, was eventually recovered about 150 feet upstream from the dock on the 14th. Now, I did think that term or that was odd. Upstream. You would have thought the body would have been carried downstream. Well, that shark. But if the shark was still playing with it, still eating on it, uh, yeah, I just, I thought that was interesting. Well, then we move to attack number five. Uh, this was July 12th, 1916. Again, the same day that all of this is taking place. Yeah, just like 30 minutes after the, the incident. Uh, you think the, about the shark. Them. Is it really that hungry? Or at this point, as people are starting to speculate, it's just like, it's just liking the hunt. It's well, liking the kills. You know, like when we talked about the Savo lions, 
we're kind of attributing things here. I mean, it's just a shark. It's opportunistic. And much like with those lions, people in the water were an easy target. And in a small body of water, to, to your point. Well, the fifth and final victim, Joseph Dunn, uh, was 14. Uh, he was of New York, was attacked a half a mile up from that Wyckoff dock area that Bill was just talking about, nearly 30 minutes after the fatal attacks on Stillwell and Fisher. The shark bit his left leg, stripping it of the flesh, but Dunn was rescued by his brother and a friend after a vicious tug-of-war battle with the shark and the body. Now, Dunn told the press that he felt his leg going down into the shark's throat, and in his quote, I believe it would have swallowed me whole. Dunn was taken to St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick. He recovered there from the bite and was released on September 15, 1916. He did, however, end up losing the leg. Um, and if you've ever seen a shark's mouth and the rows and rows of teeth, when you get jagged bitten, teeth turn different yeah. directions and yeah, it's and, like a meat grinder. And with medical science, the way it was over a hundred years ago, as to be expected, the media flooded the Beach Haven, Spring Lake, Matawan areas and the Jersey Shore attacks started a shark panic. And of course, at first, after the Beach Haven incident, scientists in the press were very reluctant to blame Van Zant's death on a shark. The Still New York, in denial. Yeah. The New York Times reported, quote, uh, Van Zant was badly bitten in the surf by a fish, presumably a shark. The state fish commissioner of Pennsylvania and former director of the Philadelphia Aquarium, James Meehan, attempted to de-emphasize the threat sharks posed to humans. And these are his words. Despite the death of Charles Van Zant and the report of two sharks having been caught in that vicinity recently, I do not believe there is any reason why people should hesitate to go in swimming at the beaches for fear of man-eaters. The information in regard to the sharks is indefinite, and I hardly believe that Van Zant was bitten by a man-eater. Van Zant was in the surf playing with a dog, and it may be that a small shark had drifted in at high water and was marooned by the tide. Being unable to move quickly and without food, he had come in to bite the dog and snapped at the man in passing. So they were like, oh, don't be afraid of sharks. Yeah, but that small shark going after the small dog, like, removed his entire thigh yeah. off of his bone. As to be expected, the response to the second attack became even more sensational. And major newspapers across the country ran the story on their front page with the New York Times headline that read, Shark Kills Bather Off Jersey Beach. Now, they estimate the growing panic cost New Jersey resort owners an estimated $250,000 at the time. That would be over $6.7 million in modern money, in lost tourism dollars. So again, they're still focused on the dollar value. And already with just that picking up, now you had mentioned the New York Times, Boston Herald picked up the story, Chicago Sun-Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicles. I mean, this thing, as Bill said, it was a shark frenzy. Yeah. And in some areas, they reported in these resorts that uh, sunbathing declined by 75%. Now, as a businessman, <laughs> um. This sure, it's is all about money with you. Uh, well, I mean, this town, these towns, that's what they yeah. banked on literally. And that kind of decline, you can understand why they would, oh no, it's not a shark. It's a, it's a sea turtle or it's a giant mackerel or it's a, a goldfish that was attacking a dog. You know, I, I get that, but my gosh, there have been five attacks in a period of a week. Yeah. I about, mean, about a week and a half. 
the business side has to kind of step aside here at some point. Well, there was a press conference held on July 8th, kind of sort of in the middle of all this, at the American Museum of Natural History, where experts stressed that a third run-in with a shark was I unlikely. The, I love the expert part. Yeah. Experts. Yeah, a third run-in with a shark. And here we are, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you got three more attacks coming up still. Mm-hmm. And although they were admittedly surprised the sharks bit anyone at all, however, the only uh, expert on fish in the group did warn swimmers to stay close to shore and take advantage of the netted swimming areas that have been installed at, at a lot of the public beaches after that first attack. Now, as to be expected, which I've been saying a lot, shark sightings did increase along the coast following the attacks. I would say because, well, it's, it's like when you're looking for something, right? Yeah. I mean, they're looking for sharks now. Yeah. On July 8th, armed motorboats patrolling the beach at Spring Creek chased an animal they thought was a shark, and at Asbury Park's Asbury Avenue Beach was closed uh, after lifeguard Benjamin Everingham claimed to have fought off a 12-foot shark with an oar. So people were encountering sharks. People were seeing them. Now, again, were they looking for them? Well, yeah, they were looking for sharks, so they're going to see sharks. Now, you know, on our podcast, we've talked about a lot of stuff. And, of course, Megalodon, that's one of Bill's, like, favorite (laughs) cryptid pets, if he could have one. But this was a 12-foot. I mean, just put that in perspective. Average human, a big human, six foot. You lay two humans down, top of the feet to the, you know, spread them out. That's a big fish yeah i don't care yeah it's not megalodon size but if you're fighting off a 12 foot long shark with a wooden oar out of a boat that's some scary stuff yeah at a certain point after all this the only public beach that stayed open in jersey was the fourth avenue beach at asbury park and they had enclosed it in a steel wire mesh fence and patrolled with armed motorboats so after a certain point they did take it seriously and they did their best to protect people and more of these shark spottings as bill said kind of when you're looking for stuff it's amazing what you might find there were shark sightings reported in, in i believe it's pronounced bayon uh, new jersey uh, rocky point new york bridgeport connecticut jacksonville florida and mobile uh, alabama and a columnist from field and stream magazine captured a sandbar shark in the surf at beach haven even yeah even after the attacks at matawan the residents lined Matawan Creek with nets and detonated dynamite in an attempt to catch or kill the shark. We're going crocodile yeah. Dundee fishing here. And Matawan Mayor Eris B. Henderson ordered the Matawan Journal to print wanted posters offering a $100 reward, which would be about $2,700 today, to anyone who killed a shark in the creek. However, even with all this going on, no one ever killed or captured a shark in the creek. I was lucky enough to scroll across an old uh, website that had postcards, the old black and white postcards. And I saw three postcards that were shot of that exact thing going on. These people, Victorian dress women, (laughs) their little sunbonnets on, holding rifles, pointing down at the water, like six or seven little rowboats out here. And then like there was one that actually caught the explosion of dynamite and water was just splashing all over the place. It was like, wow, what, what a time to be alive. Now, you know, if this was to happen today, the same kind of reaction, you'd have a bunch of good old boys out there and you know, t- oh. tank tops and, and cut off shorts with their ball caps and beer in one hand. <laughs> I love the image of like Victorian time period. They're all so formally dressed. Oh yeah. Out there chucking dynamite and fishing nets. And they- Shall I wear my good pearls today for yeah. the shark hunt? <laughs> the, the ladies in their full length dresses out there. 
and uh you know the gentlemen they're like wearing like jackets and things i i love that that crazy disconnect when you see that kind of stuff we're gonna do it but we're gonna dress for the time so resort communities along the shore petitioned the federal government to aid local efforts to protect beaches and hunt sharks and the house of representatives appropriated five thousand dollars about 130000 in modern money for the eradication of the shark threat. And President Woodrow Wilson would schedule a meeting with his cabinet to discuss these fatal shark attacks. And as these shark hunts continued across the coast of New Jersey and New York, hundreds of sharks were captured along the East Coast. And the hunt has been described since as the largest scale animal hunt in history. And of course, when people set their mind to it, you know, they, they probably did a, a fair bit of damage to the, the shark population along the coast. And all of this for, you know, basically what probably was one, maybe two sharks that should have been targeted. You mentioned President Woodrow uh, Wilson, you know, getting involved, which I thought was interesting enough. You know, the U.S. government is actually paying attention. But then I did learn there might be a little bit more interest there. President Woodrow Wilson actually had a beach house in that area. <laughs> so, you know, he may have been like, hey. Wife and kids and I, we're planning on going down there next month. Uh, you yeah. guys need to take care of the sharks. They're going to get swimming. They don't want to get ate. <laughs> so after the second attack, scientists and the public began to pre- present theories to explain what species of shark may have been involved in the Jersey Shore attacks or whether multiple sharks were involved. And, you know, they came up with all kinds of possible explanations. They proposed that a northward swimming rogue shark was responsible and that eventually this man-eater was going to be roving off the New York coast. There was a sea captain who, who believed that this was a Spanish shark that had been driven from the Caribbean Sea decades earlier by bombings during the Spanish-American War. Several fishermen claimed to have caught the Jersey man-eater in the days following the attacks. There was a, a blue shark captured on July 14th near Long Branch. And then four days later, that same Thomas Cottrell that had tried to warn everybody claimed to have caught a, a, the sandbar shark near the mouth of Matawan Creek. Ultimately. They believe on July 14th, they finally caught the Matawan man-eater. And this is, you know, we talked about the, the guy that did the hunting during the Savo man-eater encounters and how he was a man's man. This guy, 40-year-old taxidermist, lion tamer, and big game hunter Michael Schleiser and his friend John Murphy, a 28-year-old laborer for a steamship company, finally caught a white shark while fishing in Raritan Bay. Now, this is only a few miles from the mouth of the Matawan Creek. And when they set out that day, they had no plans for shark fishing. That was not what they were doing that day. As a matter of fact, as they were loading up the boat, Schleiser saw a broken oar, and he picked it up, kind of looking at it. And then Murphy's like, what are you going to do with that? And Schleiser says, well, it'll come in handy for something. And it it did. did. So they let out their trawling net in the water just south of Staten Island. And they were going north, kind of trolled through the waters for about an hour. They were about four miles from the mouth of Matawan Creek when the boat just stopped dead and the engine died. And as they were sitting there trying to figure out what happened, they realized not only had they stopped, they were now being pulled backwards. There was something in the net. Now, Schleiser looked back. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's pulling on the net. He sees there is a large shark trapped inside. Now, Murphy climbs to the front of the boat trying to kind of counter the weight and try to get the front end down. While Schleiser, he's looking around for a weapon. Again, they weren't going shark hunting. They were just going hunting. All they had was a bunch of fishing rods. No weapons, no gun, no nothing. And then suddenly the shark attacks the boat. 
its its head comes up out of the water, jaws snapping. It's trying to get the boat. Uh, it's almost like fact, a scene right out of the movie yeah. Jaws. As a matter of fact, the shark nearly sank the boat before Slicer's eyes fell on the broken oar. The piece of trash that he picked up. Yeah. He grabs this broken oar. He swings at the shark's head a couple of times. He misses. And he finally manages to hit the shark once on the nose, which if you know anything about shark biology, which I do because I'm kind of nerdy like that, <laughs> shark's noses are very, very sensitive. So hitting a shark in the nose will kind of stun it for a minute. They have a lot of sensory organs right there. Now, as he stunned it, he hit it in some more in the gills, which is another you know sensitive area. Of course, this made the shark even angrier, and it snapped at his arm. Now, it didn't bite him, but the rough skin did tear open the skin on his wrist. That's, I mean, they've got that sandpapery skin covered in what they call denticles. And, of course, the blood got the water. The shark smells the blood. The shark just starts to go berserk. Slicer gets in another lucky shot, striking the creature again on the nose, stunning it. And while it's stunned, he just starts beating it in the gills with his broken oar and on the head until he finally kills it. Now, the two men tow the beast into the dock at South Amboy where a group of volunteers help them pull the shark out of the water. Schleiser takes the shark to his shop to mount it, and when he opens up the shark's belly, he removed what he called suspicious fleshy material and bones that filled up about two-thirds of a milk crate and weighed about 15 pounds. Now, again, you said to mount it. Just as a reminder, he is a taxidermist. Yeah, he's a taxidermist. Now, he sends this away to be identified, and these remains are identified as human remains. And scientists ident- identify this shark as a young great white. He did mount it. He did put it on display in the window of his Manhattan shop. I think and, it was about seven and a half feet, something like that. It was a two-year-old juvenile female that was seven and a half feet long and weighed 350 pounds. Now, whether by chance or, you know, he'd actually got the right shark, there were no further shark attacks reported after the capture of the Great White by Schleiser and his friend. And this Great White was ultimately declared to be the Jersey Maneater. To this day, experts still don't agree on whether the white shark was responsible or not. Uh, according to a National Geographic Society report in 2002, some experts are suggesting that the great white may not, in fact, be responsible for many of the attacks pinned on the species. These people say the real culprit behind many of the reported incidents, including the famous 1916 shark attacks in New Jersey that may have served as the inspiration for Jaws, may be the lesser-known bull shark. Bull sharks do have the ability to swim into fresh water. They've got an organ in their body that balances the amount of salt content in their system against their environment. So when they're in high content salt water, you know, they, they, they don't need as much salt. And when they go into low concentrations of salt water, you know, their body absorbs and more. I, th- I think I've talked about it on some of our other podcasts because my wife Sarah and I, we used to do a lot of aquariums. There's what's called brackish waters or brackish waters, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But basically that's where seawater and freshwater are mingling. And there's a lot of creatures, you know, you'll find freshwater that can kind of exist in that area because there's enough freshwater in the salt and vice versa. There's enough salt in the freshwater. So that's kind of the gray area for a lot of aquariums and you can get a lot of the, the more crazier style creatures. Yeah. Well, bull sharks have been known to attack people in rivers. And bull sharks have been caught as far north as St. Louis yeah. in the Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, they've attacked people in, in freshwater rivers all around the world. And, of course, the great white is typically an open ocean species with them hunting along the shore for seals and things like that. But they don't, they don't typically ever find themselves in freshwater or brackish water like you were talking about. Of course, the shark that Schleiser caught was also caught in the open ocean. So 
you know, it might have been involved in the first couple attacks, and then maybe a bull shark attacked the people in Matawan Creek. Also, then another reason why bull sharks, and, and it's still kind of up in the air, bull sharks are not a common species in New Jersey waters. Great whites would be more common there. However, to this day, the 1916 shark attacks are listed in the International Shark Attack file as great white victims. So they are officially great white victims. Now, with all those newspaper publishing articles and different things, I I wanted to bring up, and we touched upon it, there were a lot of skeptical individuals that were still saying, you know, this wasn't a great white, this wasn't even a shark, you know, this was a mackerel or whatever. Sea turtle. This is, that's the one I'm going to touch on. There is a letter to the New York Times by a Barrett P. Smith of Sound Beach, New York, uh, which, by the way, is about 135 miles away on the far side of Long Island. Now, he writes into the New York Times, and I envision this, of course, this is obviously before Internet Times, but this is one of those dudes that's just out there, you know, catching Internet stories, and he decides he needs to weigh in and, you know, because he's an expert. This is pre-Internet. You're pre-Internet so right here. He's just, he's heard the story, and he's got to have his say. So, you know, this this guy who we know nothing about, he doesn't say, I'm an expert, I'm a teacher or nothing, but he goes, you know, having read with much interest the account of the, the fatalities off of Spring Lake, New Jersey, I would like to offer a suggestion somewhat at variance with the shark theories. Now, scientists believe it is most unlikely that a shark was responsible, and lots of people you know, thoroughly believe it much more likely that the attack was made by a sea turtle. <laughs> you know, scientists have spent much time at sea and along the shore and have several times seen turtles large enough to inflict just such wounds. Again, this is pre-internet. What's the chances this dude has even saw more than one picture, probably? But, you know, based upon these wounds, now these creatures are vicious disposition, and when annoyed, they are extremely dangerous to approach. Not, I'm not, not disagreeing with that. And it is a common theory that Bruder, one of the victims that we talked about, may have disturbed one while he was asleep or close to the surface. Now, come on, I, I feel like... For its time, this was as close to an internet and Facebook-style response that we got everybody just chiming in here. Are you going to tell me that seasoned captain that walked on the bridge, a seasoned captain at sea looked down and he couldn't tell the difference between a shark and a sea turtle? Well, one is round and one is shaped like a dart. Yes. (laughs) That's kind of hard to get mixed up, you know. But uh, anyhow, I felt that was... Humorous may not be the best word, but just an example of even back then, you know, we have these uh, pre-internet trolls. Well, a 2011 study conducted for the Smithsonian Channel's The Real Story Jaws took a closer look at the events from many different angles. And for the Matawan Creek attacks specifically, they occurred during the full moon, which would have coincided with raised saltwater content in the water of Matawan Creek. As a matter of fact, when these attacks happen, the the salt content would have been double what it normally would have been. And this could support the Great White being responsible. It would have had enough salinity in that water. And now, again, some also say that the type of bite was more consistent with a bull shark. You know, maybe there were two different sharks involved. Maybe it was one shark. Maybe it was two sharks. What we can say without a doubt is Schleiser killed a seven and a half foot Great White shark that had human remains inside of it. Yeah, so. he was definitely a, a man, man-eater. man And again, you got to consider the time. You know, back in early 1900s, 
truly, how many pictures would we have taken up close of the bite marks for us to examine today to say, no, that's more of a bull shark. That's more of a great white shark. At best, I think we're going to be working on some handwritten notes from a coroner or something. So like we said earlier, before these attacks, the experts doubted that sharks could even fatally wound a living person. Didn't have enough strength in their bites. Especially the sharks found off the northeastern U.S. coast. They doubted those sharks would even attack without provocation. And so, of course, the leading experts debated the threats that were posed by sharks, even after the shark attacks. Ichthyologist Henry Weed Fowler and Henry Skinner of the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia even asserted that a shark's jaws did not have the power to sever a human leg in a single bite. A Frederick Lucas, director of the American Museum of Natural History, doubted whether a shark as large as 30 feet could break through a human bone. I mean, we, we know now. Yeah, but yeah. In a comment to the Philadelphia Inquirer in early 1916, Lucas stated, it is beyond the power of even the largest carcharodon to sever the leg of an adult man. Now, by the end of July 1916, experts began to really rethink what they believed about the great white with researchers Murphy and Nichols writing, White shark is perhaps the rarest of all noteworthy sharks. Their habits are little known, but they are said to feed to some extent on big sea turtles. Judging from its physical makeup, it would not hesitate to attack a man in open water. And concluding that, because it is evident that a even a relatively small white shark weighing two or three hundred pounds might readily snap the largest human bones by a jerk of its body after it is bitten through the flesh. They would follow up in October of 1916 by writing, There is something peculiarly sinister in the shark's makeup. The sight of his dark, lean dorsal fin lazily cutting zigzags in the surface of some quiet, sparkling summer sea, and then slipping out of sight not to appear again suggests an evil spirit. His leering, Hmm. chinless face, his great mouth with its rows of knife-like teeth, which he knows too well to use on the fisherman's gear, the relentless fury with which... When his last hour has come, he thrashes on deck and snaps at his enemies. His toughness, his brutal, nerveless vitality and insensibility to physical injury fail to elicit the admiration one feels for the dashing, brilliant, destructive, gastronomic bluefish tunny or salmon. You know, you respect these other sport fish, but, but the shark is evil. Yeah. They, they changed their tune by the end of the year. Uh, now, the lasting impact of these attacks... Again, 1974, Peter Benchley writes the novel Jaws about a rogue great white shark terrorizing the fictional Long Island coastal community of Amity. Spoiler alert, if you're unfamiliar with the nearly 50-year-old movie or novel. In the movie Jaws, Chief of Police Martin Brody, which we talked, I think you mentioned, and biologist Matt Hooper with Fisherman Quint hunt the shark after it kills four people. And the novel, of course, was adapted by Steven Spielberg in 1975. And the film does reference the events from 1916 with, with Hooper explaining to the mayor, look, the situation that is apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island, and he's going to continue to feed here as long as there's food in the water, with Brody adding, and there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents, two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916, five people chewed up on the surf. Jaws was clearly at least partially inspired by this. Yes. Now, if you've gotten this far, much like with some of our other podcasts, we're always going to try to be helpful here. I have some tips to reduce your chances of being attacked by a shark while swimming from Tyler Bowling, program manager of the International Shark Attack File at the Florida Museum of Natural History. 
So I'm going to read these tips of swim with a buddy and stay close to shore. Avoid swimming at dawn or dusk, since many predators use these low-light conditions to hunt. Don't wear jewelry. The shiny metal and stones can mimic prey fish. Don't swim near schools of small fish. You'd literally be standing in shark food. (laughs) And avoid prolonged splashing as the frequency mimics that of a struggling fish. I do have one to add there. You, You reminded me. And I thought this was very comical at the time, and you just opened the door for me, the splashing aspect. There was another uh, proclaimed shark attack, and that was by an actress by the name of Gertrude Hoffman, who was swimming at Coney Island Beach shortly after the Matawan fatalities. Now, she claimed that she encountered a shark while swimming. The New York Times noted that Mrs. Hoffman had the presence of mind to remember that she had read their article. If this is not a newspaper ad, I don't know what could be. That a bather can scare away a shark by splashing and that she beat up the water furiously. And in doing so, Hoffman was certain she was going to be devoured if she didn't follow these directions that she had read in the New York Times article. So So she's splashing, she's beating, trying to scare away the shark. And the Jersey man-eaters, she says, that she did escape from by following the directions of the New York Times. And if she hadn't read that article, she might surely have been in the belly of that shark. You know, again, I'm no shark expert, but even if you said you don't want to splash frantically in the water, but I was going to, like you said, it, it's an ad. It's an ad. New York you know, Times is like, New, hey, read the New York Times. We saved you, this uh, famous actress yeah, of the time right gonna here. Save your life. Because she read our article. So I guess it's time for headlines, Eric. Well, I have one, you know, to kind of help celebrate uh, those of you that's following us. Uh, you've probably noticed or have heard us mention Bill is now starting to drop some of our episodes on YouTube. And since this is a shark episode, I wanted to offer our first clickbait. October 15th, 2021, Fox News Channel 4 aired a story about the one and only Missouri shark attack. <laughs> this comes in response to an earlier story about the number of shark attacks across each and every individual state. Now, the news channel referred quite comically to a response that had been made by a governor in Colorado at the time. Now, he had come forth on one of their local stations and addressing the same of this previous report. They were kind of mocking it. You know, he stated, well, my fellow Colorado residents uh, are like myself. We are, you know, we're quite lean. We exercise, we're in good health, and quite honestly, it's just not worth a shark's time to swim this far to get such a small meal. (laughs) Now, obviously, Colorado's landlocked, as many of the states are, uh, so there would be like a 0% chance for an ocean-dwelling shark attack, or is it? Now, Colorado is probably quite safe uh, with its, you know, geographic position. However, about Missouri, uh, Illinois, Bill had mentioned We've had uh, some bull shark spottings and stuff, uh, even up there in the river near St. Louis, more than one occasion. Uh, There are other states who have had major rivers that connect to seas and oceans. But there have been numerous reports of sharks being spotted swimming on these rivers for great, great distances. Heck, there's even been one small one caught on poles and nets, like I said, there in the St. Louis area. But there is one recorded and well-documented true shark attack right here in central Missouri, St. Louis, to be specific. 
Kathy Peters and her husband Marco were performing at the St. Louis Boat and Sports Show in 1996. There were six nurse sharks in a 9,000-gallon tank when she (laughs) inadvertently put her hand at the bottom of the tank. Now, these species are slow-moving, bottom-dwellers, and for the most part are harmless to humans. But the news reports that nurse sharks eat only from the bottom of the ocean and that one of the sharks, this one in particular, was named Bob. Now, to Bob, Kathy Peters' hand must have looked like a fish because Bob attacked her right there in a tank at St. Louis, and she suffered from five puncture wounds to the hand. So now, as you all know, we are on YouTube, so we now have our first clickbait, (laughs) the Missouri shark attack. So my headline is from the U.S. Sun on August 17th, 2023. The headline is, Final Wish. Diver shared tragic last wish before his head was bitten off by a great white shark in a horrifying attack. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I went comical with mine, Bill. You went dark. Sorry. I, I just, I found the article. I thought it worked. Wow. Now, this was by Isabel Hajek. So the story is a seasoned diver's last wish has been fulfilled in a bit of tragic irony after he was killed in a brutal shark attack. Randy Fry was diving with his close friend Cliff Zimmerman and when his life was cut short suddenly just off the shore of Fort Bragg, California. Now Zimmerman recalled seeing a fin between him and Fry just moments before hearing the shark attack. Now He described, I heard a noise like a whoosh, like a submarine, like a boat going by fast. It was a shark. He came in for the kill. It was over in five seconds. Now, Fry's body was found torn apart with his head brutally ripped from his body. The Northern California Skin Divers Club later revealed his tragic last wish in an obituary uh, written by friend and fellow member Jim Martin, who wrote, Randy has said to Cliff many times, if I have to go, I want to go in the water. Now, the shark that attacked him was identified as a great white, estimated to be around 18 feet long, and this was the 10th fatal attack ever recorded in that particular area. Now, Fry and Zimmerman had been in the water searching for abalone, and they had trolled for fish earlier in the day, and, and this was in just 15 feet of water. And the, the shark just came and, when, and attacked Randy with an instant killing blow, according to witnesses and, and experts. Now, this area is overshadowed by steep cliffs, and it's in an area that's only accessible by boat. And, of course, you know, it's a shark. It it probably just mistook Randy for potential prey. And, I mean, they commonly use this hit-and-run tactic to, to sever a limb or, or sever a head. And it's their, really a, a, a main attack method they use on their primary food source, which is seals. Now, following the attack, his diving partner swam back to the boat, was pulled out by the lookout, uh, Red Bartley. And Bartley said, you know, when he looked over, he, he he just saw a pool of blood spread across the water and he knew Randy was gone. He said five seconds and it was over. So when Fry couldn't be found through the pool of blood in the water, the two men on the boat called out a mayday via the radio and his body was found and pulled from the water Monday. The diving club he's a member of has set up a memorial fund through the Recreational Fishing Alliance with all uh, proceeds going to the the Randy Fry Memorial Fund. Before we wrap up, a couple things. One, I'm going to get real here for a minute. Some listeners to the podcast may be aware, but let's just say I am currently going through a transition, and there's nothing like going through what I'm going through to kind of help you figure out who your friends are. So while I'm sitting here across the table from him, I do want to say that Eric here has been reaching out and keeping tabs on me, and I do appreciate that. You're a good friend. 
I, I appreciate that, Eric. Absolutely, buddy. And like I said, not everybody has, has been so supportive. And, you know, my family obviously has been there for me. And let's just say that I'm not in the best place, but hopefully I'll get there. And, you know, with a little luck, you know, this will just be another stepping stone in my journey. But, you know, it's been a struggle. And, and, and I just wanted to say, I wanted to publicly thank you and say, I appreciate you reaching out and being such a good friend. You bet, man. Thank you. So, you know, we try to wrap up with a question. You said you've been to the ocean. I've been to the ocean. You've been out there in the water. Do you think about I do shark attacks when I you're do. in the ocean? I, I'm one of those crazy, goofy guys with the dad jokes. You know, there's probably not a time I step into the water and don't do the Jaws theme. You know, <laughs> dum, dum, dum. I do it in front of my grandkids or, you know, my, my daughter or my son, whoever's with us. But I will say, you know, we, my uh, grandkids now live out on the East Coast and my daughter and, and son-in-law and all of them. The, the fear out there more real is jellyfish. We have come across yeah. several jellyfish that have washed up on the shore. And of course, Missouri hillbilly here, you know, and especially those of you who don't know my wife, she is afraid of nothing. We used to raise rabbits and we had livestock in the back one night. We went back to feed after dark and there was a family of raccoons. My crazy wife was petting them. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, look at the cute little raccoon. These things will claw your face off. But you see a jellyfish for a Missourian and it's like, oh my gosh, that's so pretty. I want to touch it. I want to pick it up. And obviously they can still sting you even after they're dead. Uh, yeah. those, those long tentacles. I had a very close encounter with a dying jellyfish. It did actually hit my leg and actually wrap around it. Now more the, the grandpa of me kicked in because I had my granddaughter out there. And the main thing I did was just pick her up out of the water. And this thing is, you know, with the, with the tide hitting my legs over and over and I'm seeing it and I'm just like, oh gosh, this is going to hurt. I, it never got me. So I, I was very lucky, but that's one of the real fears for me that I have come, you know, face to face. I have saw like maybe a 12 inch shark one time we were just kind of noticing it. it was playing up there on the beach. It was pretty cool. But besides that, I, you know, I got to admit, I never really thought much about it until we were on vacation the one time and they had the shark advisory. Now I will say the, the time we had gone previous to that, we'd gone with a bunch of family friends and a friend of mine did find a small shark, you know, eight, nine, 10 inches or something that had washed up. This was just after a hurricane had gone up the coast with like maybe a week before. Now, of course, there was a horrific incident that happened in the surf and my, my friend, unfortunately, did lose his wallet, <laughs> forgot to take it out of his pocket before he went That's swimming. That's another clickbait right there. Yeah. I kind of wanted to make that sound did a lot lose worse. his, pause, yeah. wallet. But he lost his wallet in the surf, his credit cards and, and what, what cash That's they had that, on him. Well, that hurts in a totally different way. Yeah. But no, luckily they recovered and pain. were able to make it home. Yeah. It, it was, uh, you know, I, I like hunting for shark teeth. That's my thing. When I go to the beach, I'll go swimming, but I like to dig for the little shark teeth. And you you can find a fistful of them. I mean, they'll be little tiny ones. You're not finding like the big giant megalodon teeth usually. Some people get lucky, but not me. I ain't been <laughs> that lucky. I do have a few at home, but I have a, a bucket full of shark teeth that I have accumulated in different ways. But yeah, I never really thought much about being attacked by a shark in the ocean, to be fair. As someone who's fascinated by sharks. Until that day with the shark flags up. 
So well, again, in Missouri, we're just so far removed from it. You know, it's kind of one yeah. Of those but things. as a child, I just knew I was going to get attacked by a shark in Lake of the Ozarks. So. <laughs> Um, I was kind of a paranoid kid. Every movie I watched, I just knew that thing was going to happen to me. So like I saw Jaws and, you know, or, or the movie Piranha. Piranha happens in freshwater. And I just knew there were Piranha living in the pond behind my house. Well, we know we have Piranha at Lake of the Ozarks. Well, we, yeah, we've now. We've podcasts on I that. never would have believed it then. Well, I would have believed it then, but for entirely different reasons. <laughs> now, your buddy lost his billfold. I think I told you the story. I, I did lose my glasses. <laughs> Uh, which are very vital to me. I yes. mean, I can't see beyond like, I, I would love to say three foot. I'm not even sure I could see clearly at <laughs> three foot without my glasses. So that was, that was interesting. And on a, in Virginia and lost my glasses and I am one of the designated drivers to be coming back home. So we ended up staying a little longer and thank goodness getting some replacements. <laughs> but, well, enough of the story sharing for this one. We hope that you have enjoyed yet another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So. When you're waiting out there on those beaches, keep your eye to the horizon for that dorsal fin. Da-dum, da-dum. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine, too. Uh, whatever, whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition. And gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. That reverb. That, I was going to say, that reverb is it's more than a half a and second we're not, delay. It's not coming through, though, when it records. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's weird. It's weird. We don't have that. We haven't had that bad. Yeah, we're like in a gymnasium acoustics uh, they were under going a, a, a po- the, the work this I don't know. <laughs> you have to forgive me it's been a building while. structures hurt they said a 10 foot shark had swallowed the swallowed <laughs> was attacked while swimming 130 yards uh, that's about 120 miles from shore 120 miles meters M. M. <laughs> that had been a long way from shore. That would have been a long... I was thinking as I said that. And major newspaper... <laughs> Rewind. They estimate the growing panic caused New Jersey resort... Resort. <laughs> I am off my game. Or whether multiple short... Blah, sharks. Now Schleicer gets in another lucky shark... Another lucky shark. There will be a lot of outtakes on this one. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. 
we do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.